0: Today's word I'm calling Golgotha. Jesus had been sentenced to death by Pontius Pilate and then tortured and flogged by the cruel guards of King Herod and finally commanded by Pilate to carry his cross to Calvary or Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Pilate had told the centurion to arrange for an escort of guards around Jesus to escort him to the windswept hill. What Pilate had done was order an inscription to be written that read, the King of the Jews. It was written in Hebrew and Latin and Greek so that everybody could read it. When it was placed there, an angry voice in the crowd said, who wrote that, it's wrong. One of the temple priests protested that it should have said, that he said he was King of the Jews. However, Pilate had made it very clear to everyone he had written that inscription and it would stay as it was. So the crowd had grown. They were confused and angry, some of them. Some were followers and friends. And when Jesus tried to carry that cross, he staggered under the weight of the beam and he dragged it behind him. But he was weakening all the way the centurion saw him stagger and fall headlong and saw blood flowing freely from jesus and he knew he had to keep him on his feet and a burly lumbering man who by the look of him was visiting from some other region he had different kind of clothing to what they were wearing in jerusalem at that time and he was close by jesus and the centurion called out to the man and said help this man carry the cross And the man from Cyrene did what he was told, took the beam and strode on into a journey, immortalised in the word of God, into endless time. That day, that event, the death of Jesus, when I finally got there, it was six full hours on Calvary for Jesus to die. But there was all of the other things that happened prior to that six hours. There were floggings of Jesus. There were, as it were, continual penalising trials and abuse. But between 9, our 9 o'clock and our 3pm, that six hours was the Golgotha experience. That six hours on Calvary. Mary, the mother of Jesus, stood on that flat terrain at the top of Golgotha, along with her sister, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. And they were joined there by the disciple John. The other disciples had decided they'd stay in the background. They were already crushed in their hearts and confused. They preferred to hang back from the crowd. They'd run away in the garden when Jesus was being taken into custody, probably feeling guilty. There were two criminals already hanging on crosses either side of the hole where Jesus' pole was to be fixed. But these two men were tied to their crosses. They weren't nailed. Then Jesus was finally hoisted up, having been nailed, and then dumped into the hole prepared for it. Jesus looked down and he saw his mother standing there beside John, his close friend, and he said to her, Mother, behold your son. And to John he said, son, behold your mother. And from that time on, John took her into his home. There was a Christian community began to form after that time. Present amongst the growing crowd were some temple priests and other leaders of the Jews who jeered. You are pretty good at saving others, but you can't even save yourself. If you are the promised one, our Messiah, then come on down from that cross and prove it to us. Weren't you going to pull down our temple and rebuild it again in three days? Well, why not get yourself down from that cross? It was the custom for a soldier to push a sponge of sour wine and myrrh into the mouths of those that were being crucified. And when the soldier did that to Jesus, he turned his face away and refused that swab. So then the man who'd had that in his hand joined the other soldiers who were casting lots, throwing dice to see who was going to keep Jesus' robe, which fulfilled a scripture, a prophetic scripture in Psalm 22 that said, They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my robe. Dust was spinning itself into people's faces on this strange day, and gusts of wind blew as storm clouds raced faster than usual across the sky, causing a, a flickering of sun and deep shadow as Jesus hung there the criminals beside him were weakening and groaning in their pain and one of them turned to Jesus he had earlier on joined in with gusto to the jeers and sneers and he now wanted to have his last few words of bravado heard in this prison of life that he'd made for himself his last day on earth and he shouted out so you're the Messiah are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us, too, while you're at it. But the man on the other side of Jesus, the other criminal, shouted at that first man angrily and said, Don't you even fear God when you're dying? We deserve to die for our evil deeds, but this man hasn't done one wrong thing. He then turned to Jesus and said, Lord, will you remember me when you're in your mighty kingdom?" Jesus turned his head, looked at him with love, saying, Today, you're coming home with me to paradise. High noon surrendered to a deep darkness. So three hours have passed on Calvary, noon has come, and then for three full hours, darkness took over on Golgotha, on Calvary. And in those last hours, it put a stop to many things. Shouts of bravado that moments ago would have roused bold echoes. They now just hung hollow in the still air. And the mockers that were standing close to the action earlier on began to drift back into the crowd. Darkness does strange things to people. They're not quite as sure of themselves. There are angels suspended within this pool of sadness that shrouded the desolation down there and heaven waited in eternity as three hours of darkness passed on earth. Then Satan shot himself like a dart into the one that hung between two criminals on a lonely platter of the place of the skull. The gigantic spirit of Jesus absorbed the full impact of Satan as all hell's hateful fury hit him, and as every vile thing ever done by countless millions of crippled hearts down through the ages and for the ages to come, assailed his being. This was an eternal thing that Jesus was doing. Thunder cracked and the earth began to shake. The magnitude of this kind of collision, the sum of all sin, hitting the sum of all innocence, would shake all created things. A swirling sea of fear sought to pull Jesus under, but he hoisted his faith above the fear with absolute trust in his father's love as he took every vile accusation that Satan hurled at him and he locked them into the vault of his perfect love. He felt safe there. He owned it all, all of the accusations, but he was completely innocent. Another missile from Satan hit him. It was black, fathomless, nothingness, like annihilation. He was living out Yet another prophetic fulfillment of Psalm 22, spoken by David over 500 years before, which said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the first verse of that psalm. The source of this horrific thought was not Father God forsaking Jesus. Jesus was God. How can God forsake God? So... Darkness had assailed the human heart of Jesus, the son of man of the lineage of David. It was there that he was being attacked, in his humanity. And in an instant, Jesus knew the answer to his own question. He had not been forsaken by his father, but in his humanity, he had experienced forsakenness for a moment so that no living soul from this time on would have to feel forsaken by God again because of their humanity, their human weakness, which makes you feel that you're separated from God, but not forsaken. When you know and have faith, nothing can make you feel forsaken. Paul said, and he wrote to the Corinthians, he said, I'm cast down, but not forsaken. As Jesus hung there, he embraced the tragic weakness of humanity and he touched the feelings of forsakenness for every human soul throughout all the ages. But that bank of love of his and the compassion that filled heaven filled his heart and went out to a beloved humanity. He looked at the mocking faces out there in the crowd, they're out there in the darkness somewhere, and he loved them. He sent his voice into a waiting heaven and cried out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He had done it, it was finished. The plan of salvation could now be put into effect. But Jesus had something more to say, but his throat was so parched that he couldn't speak properly. And he wanted to speak with strength. I'm thirsty, he gasped, fulfilling yet another scripture in Psalm 69, which says, and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. The centurion ordered a soldier to give Jesus the vinegar wine sponge. These people fulfill prophecy and they don't know they're doing it. Quite amazing. That's happening in your life. God has destined things for you. And You do them and wonder, how did that happen? I don't know if I planned that. Where did those words come from? Jesus had ordered that for your life, spoken into your life. Holy Spirit had arranged it for you in the particular way that you know how to hear something and understand it. We all hear and understand things in different ways but it got to you, it got to your spirit, and you said, yes, that's for me. It's the work of God and the Holy Spirit, the Logos, the the word that's been designed for you, and the Rhema, the life-giving word that is particularly able to come alive for you. Then Jesus was able to speak out, Father, into your hands I now offer my spirit. Then in one last gasp he said for all to hear, It is finished. Then he died and he and we were placed securely in the Father's loving hands. The Jewish leaders didn't want the victims hanging there the next day, which was the Sabbath and a very special Sabbath at that for it was the Passover. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the two men crucified with Jesus to quicken their deaths in order to take their bodies down. But when they came to Jesus, they didn't break his legs because they saw that he was already dead. However, to make sure that he was truly dead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and blood and water flowed out. And the soldiers did this in fulfilment of yet two more of those 500-year-old prophecies from Psalm 22 which say, not one of his bones will be broken, and they shall look on him whom they pierced. So who brought about the death of Jesus? Was it his father, the Jews, the Romans, our sins? Well, they all had very important parts to play in this. had roles involved in the death of Jesus. And there are scriptures for all of those. The father, the Jews, the Romans, and our sins. It was finally Jesus who said these words in John chapter 10 and verse 17. I lay down my life for my sheep. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. (laughs) But I lay it down of myself. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This command I have received from my father. That was a voluntary act of loyal devotion and faith. At the moment of his death, the cosmos convulsed, an earthquake tore a searing gash into the mountainside, and people were toppled off their feet. Rocks split apart, and the graves and tombs on a nearby hill cracked open. People ran in fear from the place, but they didn't know where to go. At that moment, there were priests in the temple about to sacrifice the Passover lamb, and when their knife pierced that sacrificial animal, the true lamb of God offered himself on Calvary, As the final sacrifice for all sin. The priests were thrown off their feet by the earthquake and the temple shook. Huge stones fell from the parapets. The great veil in the temple proper, which separated the place of God's presence in the holy place from the rest of the temple, was torn like lightning from top to bottom. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. You can read all of these utterances in the scripture. The four gospels speak about this event and they blend in together like patchwork. So I've put them all together in a composite here and added commentary to it. When that veil was torn, it signified that Christ as both man and God had done away with the separation of mankind from God, symbolised by the veil in the temple worship. But this opening of the veil had also done away with the separation of mankind from God in all the earth, not just the temple worship, for the priests. He had gone ahead for all of us through the veil so that we could live in his abiding presence. We can now have faith to come confidently into this holy place in our own hearts because of his mercy upon our imperfect humanity. And we can receive the power of his life within us to do what is right and pleasing to God. Sins have been forgiven by that blood. The veil that was torn when Jesus died on the cross was the awesome declaration of the certain hope that we can live in his presence at all times behind that veil of separation. Jesus was without sin because he trusted his Father with all of his heart to fulfil his own personal heart's desires. That's how grace allows us to do the will of God. The heart desires to please the Father rather than take on as a priority our own personal desires. We do have personal desires. But Jesus trusted that his father would bless him and comfort him and feed his soul by putting what the father desired in front of what he might have wanted personally for himself. Jesus, while he said, I lay down my life voluntarily as a human suffered agony in the garden saying Lord if there's any way take it from me nevertheless not my will but yours be done there's our prayer it brought about a resurrection and it brings it about in us sometimes five or six resurrections in one day <laughs> when you surrender something God brings about something better it touches us in our hearts first and then we start to realise that was God raising something up that I put down laid down on an altar, as it were. Jesus' human desires, which are common to all of us, were subdued by his higher, heartfelt, godly desire. So his desires, as it says in James, we sin um, when through our wrong desires it brings a conceiving of sin and gives birth to sin. And therefore, that sin brings death. That's how James puts it in chapter 1. But those desires in Jesus didn't conceive and give birth to sin. Though he was tempted, but didn't go down that pathway. The moment Jesus died, the law of sin and death was being overturned to make way for a new spiritual order to come into effect, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. That spiritual law did not exist in the Garden of Eden. Adam didn't have it. He didn't have the life of Jesus within. He had communion with the Father, but he was Adam, human spirit. Jesus was making way for us to become joined to the spirit of God, the spirit of life in Christ. That is a higher communion of God with man than Adam had. This is his son, Jesus, God, giving us his relationship, not Adam's, his, with the Father. It would occur only after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and the sending of the Holy Spirit to give us that risen life of Jesus within, to give us a new heart, a new heart of compassion like his. Our hearts can now be fulfilled with a new desire that freely chooses to fulfil the desires of God's heart, Amen.